I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in the Middle East, in particular, the U.S. strikes on Houthi targets, on Iranian proxy targets. Today, we're talking Monday, February 5th at about noon. We have with us the great Dr. Seth Jones, one of my absolute favorite guests to have on this program. Seth, welcome back. Andrew, it is great to be on. This is my favorite podcast, so (laughs) it is great to be on. Well, good to have you back. And, you know, Seth, on Friday... Of course, the United States targeted 85 targets in Syria and Iraq. Saturday, there were dozens of strikes in Yemen on the Houthis. On Sunday, um, the United States destroyed a cruise missile that they say was purposed towards U.S. naval vessels. Why is all this happening now? So, uh, Andrew, there's the short-term reason, and then there's the there's the much longer-term reason. The short-term reason is the U.S. lost three service men and women that were uh, at a base near the Jordanian border with Syria. They were killed by a drone uh, that had come from a group linked with the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force. And so there was an immediate response uh, based on the death of three American soldiers. But more broadly, there is an an escalating war in the Middle East in the last couple of months since October 7th, the the attacks in Israel by Hamas. Iran allied militias have launched over 160 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. 160? 160. They have been at some bases like the U.S. base at Al-Tamf, U.S. forces operating in Syria's Conoco oil fields and then multiple bases uh, in Iraq. So yes, there's been a constant barrage of drone, of mostly drones and standoff weapons along those lines. Uh, and then obviously a range of attacks against ships in and around the Red Sea that the US has been involved in striking down. So there's the short-term reaction to the death of American soldiers. There's the much longer-term violence that's, that's been enveloping the region for, for quite some time since, since October. Now, many of these strikes over the weekend were manned strikes. They weren't drone strikes. And the U.S., though, and particularly the administration, has been accused of, you know, maybe a little bit too late, a little too little, considering Iranian proxies killed three U.S. servicemen. What about that criticism, Seth? So the strikes that the U.S. has conducted, and over the past couple of weeks, too, it has frequently been joined by a range of allies and partners. The British, for example, have conducted strikes. The U.S. has the Eisenhower, the USS Eisenhower in the Red Sea. That aircraft carrier has got a number of aircraft like Navy F-18s. Those are fighter jets. Those and other aircraft have been involved in strikes. So on Friday, the U.S. targeted 85 locations generally rockets and missile locations, stores of rockets and missiles and drones in Syria and Iraq. Also over the weekend, the United States struck at least 36 Houthi targets, primarily in northern Yemen. Uh, These also included what we understand to be command and control operations centers, intelligence centers, weapons facilities, and bunkers. So these are also ones that have been used by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force. This is Iran's paramilitary arm. What we haven't seen, though, Andrew, really is, and what's important that this this was not, is the U.S. has not struck individuals, people. So it has not targeted Quds Force operatives, Iranian operatives. Um, it has not conducted attacks against any of these 
groups their leadership. So what we call high value targets, whether they're Kataib Hezbollah or Houthis or others. And also the U.S. warned ahead of time that it was going to conduct these attacks and specifically warned that it was going to conduct them in places like Iraq and Syria. So I would say a couple of things. One is you lose the element of surprise when you warn everybody that you're going to target and where you're going to target. So I don't fully buy the logic of why you warn everybody uh, ahead of time where you're going to target. And second of all, I'm not convinced that these kinds of strikes are in any meaningful way going to degrade the capability of these groups. These are all Iranian-linked groups. These are all primarily weapon systems that can be easily replaced or infrastructure that can be rebuilt. These are all areas that Iran has got a fair amount of uh, control or at least influence in and around. So they can provide backup material. And they've been doing this for years. Nor, I don't think, uh, is it likely to deter. Uh, the, the Houthis responded immediately to the strikes in Yemen, saying that they were going to now escalate. So I think the, the challenge is warning everyone ahead of time and then striking the kinds of targets. I just don't see this as being a particularly strong response. Okay, so just trying to understand this. The United States, I suppose, in this strategic action is trying to avoid getting into a wider war, yet trying to send a message that we can degrade you even if we're not doing that much. So what does that all really add up to? I think the problem is I'm not sure the U.S. has done either of those well. I'm not sure it's successfully degraded, certainly in a mid to long term way, the capabilities of any of these groups, nor has it deterred them. In fact, look, the killing of three U.S. soldiers is an escalation. The other side escalated. And instead of even meeting the Iranians where they were with the recent attack, the U.S. refuses to go after, for the moment, high-value targets. I mean, they killed American soldiers. And so I understand some of the concerns about escalating too much, but I think if you're trying to send a signal that you do not target American soldiers, this is not what it looks like. So what could the United States do and, and what should the United States do? Well, there are a couple of things that I think uh, the United States could signal. The Nobel Prize winning academic and uh, game theorist Thomas Schelling, who's written really some of the fundamental work on deterrence, which is part of what this entire discussion is about, uh, has a concept called latent violence. And what that concept essentially means is that part of uh, the goal of deterrence is to make it clear that you are willing to escalate and that you are willing to use more if the other side does not back down. So I think the options the U.S. has is one, it could start targeting high value targets, at least among some of these groups. Kataib Hezbollah was involved in the killing of U.S. soldiers. The U.S. has not conducted attacks against senior Kataib Hezbollah leaders. The U.S. could uh, conduct attacks against high value targets within the Houthis, including ones that are directly involved in the planning and operations of striking these uh, commercial vessels in the Red Sea. So that is definitely on the table. And this is something that the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and, and even the Bush administration going, going far enough back were involved in in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen itself is conducting attacks against high-value targets, whether Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, or other groups. So that's definitely on the table. The U.S. has not done that. I think it's time to get serious about this. And my, my general sense is they should be on the table, uh, especially after killing of U.S. soldiers. The other is, at what point do you signal that if this doesn't stop, that Iran may be a target? Now, I'm not saying cities, 
but Iranian missile sites in and around Iran itself, or Iranian vessels, including Islamic Revolutionary Guard vessels in areas like the Red Sea, suddenly are Iranian drones. At what point do you start taking action directly against Iran? Because let's face it, Iran is, it's not the mastermind that is orchestrating all of this like a puppet show, but it's at the table for all of these groups. It has provided the weapons, it's provided a range of assistance, it's provided intelligence. It is involved all of these actors have direct links with the Quds Force, Iran's paramilitary arm. And yet there's been, there's been no pain that the Iranians have had to suffer for any of this activity. And, you know, I've seen a lot of mixed reports about what the Iranian leadership is, is thinking on this. And their official statements as recently as this morning are pretty aggressive that, you know, don't mess with us because if you do, there's going to be real consequences. And they're talking directly to the United States when they're saying that, even though these are all their proxy groups that have caused these issues for the United States and for Israel. And like you said, the United States took action against material and facilities, not against people. So, where do you think Iran is strategically on this? They certainly are puffing their chests out. You know, the, the big picture here is, I mean, Iran's actually, over the last decade, has put itself in a pretty good position in the Middle East. If we go back to the 2015 Russian entrance in the war in Syria, uh, one of the key components of that the Russians were involved in the air campaign. Uh, the ground campaign to aid the Syrian regime take back its territory included, to a great extent, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force trained actors. In fact, Qasem Soleimani, who uh, was targeted by the previous administration in Iraq and killed, was on the ground in a joint operations center for part of that campaign in Syria. And so what the Iranians were able to do is, is increase their footprint on the ground in Syria, including with groups like Lebanese Hezbollah, and they have provided additional weapons. There are now probably 150,000 or so. This is what senior Israelis officials told me on my trip to Israel a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute. Yeah, 150,000 or so standoff weapons from Lebanon alone. This is this buildup has taken you know roughly a decade or so. Uh, the Iranians now have allies uh, thanks to activity they've done over the last decade or so in Syria. Um, with the withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan, they now have Afghanistan, particularly Western provinces like Herat, where the Quds Force is active, and then Iraq itself, where the Iranians have increased their relationship with the popular mobilization forces. And then you add the Houthis in Yemen, uh, where the previous administrations have largely withdrawn U.S. forces from Yemen uh, that were involved in attacks against the al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So, Andrew, I think the last few administrations, both the current Biden administration, which wanted to get out of the Middle East, the Trump administration, and the Obama administration, the Iranian expansion in all of these areas has taken place on all of their watches. So, I, I find it interesting to hear people try to, you know, provide coverage for their particular political uh, supporters of the last few days on media about what their administration did. No. Over the last decade, the Iranians have expanded their activity under all of their watch. Okay, so across three administrations, the Iranians have expanded their reach in the Middle East. And tragically, this has led to October 7th in Israel, to the situation we're in now. So, And just to add to that, I think if you look, Andrew, at the national defense strategy, it clearly was an understandably a China-focused national defense strategy. Right. Russia was not even a focus, not a major focus 
until they invaded Ukraine. And then the administration had to revise uh, the strategy because the Russians had invaded. But, you know, even if you look at Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, his foreign affairs piece right around the time of the October 7th attack in Israel was pretty specific. It said, and I'm quoting, so this is, this is Jake Sullivan writing in foreign Direct affairs. Direct quote from Jake. Quote, although the Middle East remains beset with perennial challenges, the region is quieter than it has been for decades, end quote. And this was just before October 7th. Just before October. I mean, they clearly misread the situation in the Middle East. I think the national defense strategy was moving in a direction of continuing to withdraw U.S. forces from the Middle East. So I, I think they're, you know, that, that we're in a position now where we're having to walk all that back. So because of a pivot to China, the United States over the course of three administrations has not had as much of a presence or a focus on the Middle East is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. And, you know, to some degree, it's understandable. China's a major threat. But the reality is the world is in a position right now you cannot focus on one region. The U.S. has at least three major fronts, the Chinese in the Indo-Pacific, the Russians in Eastern Europe, and the Iranians and the Middle East. And what's important to realize is, and it's been pretty clear over the last year, they are increasingly closely operating. The Russians have gotten a lot of their shahids and drones from the Iranians. The Chinese have provided assistance uh, to the Russians as well. There's a Chinese-Iranian relationship. The Iranians talk about themselves as being the axis of resistance, but increasingly we see that as Iran, Russia, and China. And I think the United States has got to stop trying to say we need to focus on Asia, because in some sense, it's got to be careful in all these regions. I want to talk about your trip to Israel um, that you made just a couple weeks ago. I know you learned a lot while you were there, and I want to get to that in a minute. But I have a, a final question on the United States and the current situation in dealing with these strikes. What do you think the United States now, given all that you've just said, is likely to do? The danger is still there. Iran is cooking up many other things throughout the region. So what are we, you know, I know Jake Sullivan said on TV this weekend, the administration isn't going to telegraph its punches. But what do you think we're likely to do? Well, I, I think let's start with the diplomatic and political efforts, because that's clearly important. You know, the probably the most active person in addition to, to Jake Sullivan has been Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who uh, has made multiple trips. Who's there in the region today. To the region, who's in the region today. I do think there really has to be an effort to think through the next steps after the is Israelis move to a new phase of the war in Gaza. What happens in Gaza? Who fills the vacuum that the Israelis are leaving from? The Hamas leadership is largely still intact. Uh, the Israelis have not significantly, in my view, degraded Hamas capabilities. Again, much of the leadership is still alive, and I'm not even talking about those that aren't even in Gaza. So I don't think this Israeli government is really willing to talk Palestinian state. I don't know that I'd necessarily go there, certainly not after October 7th. Most every Israeli official told me that talking about a Palestinian state at this point makes it look like they've just conceded after getting a major strike in, in Israel in October 7th. But I do think, in private, a range of Israeli officials talk to us about the need to think very carefully about what role the Palestinian Authority should play in Gaza after the Israelis withdraw most of the forces they have there. So that's, that's an important aspect that gets into the governance of Gaza. 
Um, there's a law enforcement component to that. Those forces, whether they're Palestinian Authority or tied to them or former Palestinian Authority members, need to be trained, equipped. There needs to be close intelligence sharing with countries in the region, including Israel. So I, I think there's a role that's probably on the diplomatic. There's a security side of that uh, as well. It's important. I think also... And the United States is going to encourage, continue to try to encourage this. And it is going to encourage. Again, I don't think now is the right time for the Israelis on a state. I just don't think the Netanyahu government is willing to talk about a state. So I think anything that pushes too much publicly in that direction is probably going to fail. Um, but I think, you know, Israel-Saudi rapprochement, part of the Abraham Accords, I think is important. Uh, what would the Saudis be looking for, for something along those lines? I do think it's important to also work on the diplomatic side for at least a temporary ceasefire in Gaza that helps release additional hostages. It is definitely important to the Israeli public. It's definitely important to those countries that also have hostages there. There still are more than 100 hostages. Yeah, and it's now going beyond 120 days they've been in captivity. So I think that's important um, as well. There's also an economic dimension. The administration announced sanctions against uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force over the weekend and some individuals that have been involved in some of the activities. So there, there is an economic aspect of this uh, as well. I think what the administration really has to do is- We're talking about the Biden administration now. Biden administration now has to do is operate on all of these fronts to push in the short term what happens in Gaza post-Israeli withdrawal. And I, I frankly think that it's going to be important for the Israelis sooner rather than later to end this current phase, to reduce the presence that they have now in Gaza. And they're going to continue to strike from the air. They're going to continue to conduct raids, but to decrease the presence that they have pretty soon, you know, the next couple of weeks or months in Gaza, and then focus on all these other things that I've outlined. I think my biggest worry is that there's too much anxiety among some administration officials and worry about escalation. I think it's made for a weak response right Here now. Here in the United States. Yeah. Okay. So when you were in Israel, you were hearing, I'm sure, a lot of anxiety from a lot of different quarters, which the United States administration is hearing and Congress is hearing too. What were a lot of your talks about, Seth? I mean, when I, my monitoring of the Israeli media, I keep hearing population is in shock. The country has been shrunken because you know, people have had to move to the central part of Israel away from their homes in the north because of Hezbollah and away from their homes in the south because of the October 7th attacks and because of what's going on kinetically in Gaza now. So Israel geographically has shrunken for the moment. The psyche there is not good. The United States is trying to be a good partner to Israel. What are you hearing on the ground there in Israel? Well, I think what's most important to understand both with Israeli government officials, but also with the Israeli population. And we talked to senior levels of government individuals, military intelligence, foreign ministry, national security council, as well as some population, is how traumatic the October 7th attack was and will be probably for decades for the Israelis. Uh, something close to a post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that US soldiers often have to deal with in combat zones. They were attacked in their country. Their people were slaughtered. I visited several of the kibbutzim, including 
ones like Niroz that lost a quarter of its population. A quarter of its population was slaughtered, including children, women, elderly, the individuals that were hunted down like a video game at the music festival. So we drove by uh, the area where, where that all, all happened. And then even some that came in from Gaza and just looted these uh, various kibbutzim. That's different, I think, from any of the wars that the Israelis were involved in. That was a direct attack against civilians. And as part of that, as you noted, there are something on the order of 200,000 Israelis from both the Gaza envelope and also from Israel's northern border with Lebanon that have been moved. Some are staying in hotels or other locations, but until there is a significant degrading of, of Hamas, then there's the Hezbollah issue, which I'll get to in a moment. I think the Israelis will still feel very deeply insecure. And, you know, part of that is their government missed the intelligence, uh, missed some intelligence and was surprised. And their Israeli defense force did not respond quickly. I mean, it is interesting talking to one of the individuals from the kibbutz in Niroz, who said that Hamas operatives breached the various gates of the kibbutz around 6.30 or 7 in the morning. And the Israeli defense forces responded and they got there by 2 p.m., I mean, what's striking about it, that's an hour drive from Tel Aviv. That's how long it took me to get there. So just a, an incompetent response. Probably partially the um, uh, division headquarters in Reim was harshly overrun. So, but just think all of the training, the quick reaction force, none, nothing worked the way it should. So that There were retired generals who got in their cars and got there faster than the IDF. And we talked to one of them who did that. And that brings me to the second point, which is, and this is, this is my sort of worry over the course of 2024, is uh, there's still a range of Hezbollah positions, some of them mobile, operating very close to the Israeli border in the north. As part of the end of the last major uh, Hezbollah-Israel war, there was a negotiation uh, under um, UN Security Council uh, auspices uh, called 1701, where Hezbollah was supposed to move back up beyond the Latani River. And Hezbollah positions are clearly close to the Israeli border, well south of the Latani River. So the, the worry here is that uh, the Israelis will conduct preventive war in and around southern Lebanon to try to push Hezbollah back towards the Latani River. And that certainly could get ugly. And I think as we learned from talking to Israeli and U U.S. officials in December, that the Israelis strongly contemplated doing that in the first several days after October 7th. And the U.S. was involved in trying to prevent them from doing that, like one, one theater at a time. So let's go back to the Hamas theater for a second. You mentioned that the Hamas leadership has not been significantly degraded. You mentioned that Israel hasn't had the kind of success on the battlefield that they want to have and that they believe they need to have. Why is that? Well, look, this is a very difficult environment. When we were in Israel, we, we went almost to the borders. We about a mile from the border with Gaza, uh, had multiple briefings on the Gaza operating environment. It's a tough environment to operate in. Uh, unlike wars and cities like um, in Mosul, for example, where the US and the Iraqi government fought, you could actually encourage most of the population to leave. There's nowhere to go in Gaza. So it's a mix of Hamas, 
Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other fighters in a civilian population that can't leave that area. Yeah, and let's be clear. I mean, they can't leave because the Jordanians won't let them into Jordan, the Egyptians won't let them into Egypt, and the Israelis certainly won't let them back into Israel. Exactly. Uh, so there's nowhere for them to go. Nobody's letting, and no Gulf state is willing to also bring them into their, into their countries, even temporarily. So there's nowhere for them to go. So it's a, it's a difficult operation. It's, an urb, it's urban terrain. Then you have additional variables at play. You've got a lot of underground activity, uh, the tunnels that Hamas has built over time that in some cases are difficult to penetrate. Hundreds of miles of tunnels. Yeah. And the Israeli bombs are not able to reach. I mean, they flooded some. They've conducted other operations, exploded others, and, and put improvised explosive devices down there. Uh, so, but that, that's an additional challenge that makes it hard to target the leadership. And then also you have situations where parts of the Hamas leadership has hostages in and around them. And so if you're going to target, and that means kill, the Hamas leadership, you're also going to kill Israeli citizens as well, if you're not careful. So for a range of these reasons, it's a very difficult environment to operate in. And again, just think, how are you able to assess Hamas from general civilian population? Because they clearly are exploiting bleeding that, bleeding in. Generally, most of their fighters on a day-to-day -day basis are not going to be in uniform. They're embedded in the population. They're embedded in the population. It's a very difficult, and which, which is why I, I think, I'm sure the Israelis knew this from the beginning, but this is going to be a long campaign, not necessarily this phase, but this is going to be a long campaign. I personally think they erred early on. They were mistaken by announcing that their objective was to destroy Hamas which I think is unachievable. U.S. politicians made the same mistake, saying they were going to destroy Al-Qaeda, an organization that continues to exist. This is both Republicans and Democrats. Politicians do this. It's not surprising, but, but I think it was a mistake. Uh, I mean, I understand why they did it, but I, I, I think it's going to be a long campaign, and, and I think that's probably what's setting in now for Israeli political and military leaders. Do you think the kinetic nature of fighting in Gaza is going to slow down in the next couple of weeks and, and continue to slow down? I think it's possible that the Israelis will start to withdraw some of their ground forces from Gaza. Again, there will be a strong interest, as there has been over the last 20 years or so, the ability to bring in Israeli special operations and other elite units on a routine basis to conduct raids into Gaza. And they also have the ability with both fixed wing aircraft, F-15s or F-16s or drones to conduct strikes from the air and as well as to collect intelligence. Uh, the Israelis can also use short, medium and long range fires, including artillery. We saw that in person when we were down in that area. So there are a range of ways the, the Israelis can conduct strikes, both ground-based air, and then even, even using personnel, even after they've decreased their, their, uh, their presence in, in Gaza. I think they're, they're, they're going to have to do that sooner rather than later. Do you get the sense that the IDF has regrouped and are back to form, or are they still struggling with their failures? Well, I think one of the things that the Israelis have done over decades is they're able to regroup. You know, I have found, including um, this last trip, they are blunt, including in private, but often in public, about mistakes that they make. Uh, but they've got an outstanding reputation and a track record for um, identifying and then fixing and then trying to fix it, at least at the operational and tactical levels. And I think we've, we're likely to continue to see them uh, figure out how to continue to operate in an environment like Gaza, one like the West Bank, 
Lebanon is, that's a tougher challenge in southern Lebanon, but I certainly think that they're evolving their tactics, techniques, and procedures and operational level activity uh, based on what they're already dealing with. Well, so let's turn to Lebanon for a second. You already outlined some of the challenges that they face. One of the things that keeps coming up is that Hezbollah is a, is a wholly different enemy than Hamas. It's a more sophisticated military operation. They have hundreds of miles of tunnel in southern Lebanon as well. Reports indicate that some of their tunnels are even big enough for semi-trucks to drive through with major rocket launch facilities on the top of these semi-trucks and hatches open up and missiles can fly out. What is Israel going to try to do given all those realities? I suspect the goal of the Israelis is limited and I think it's pretty straightforward. Now, executing it's going to be difficult if they end up going down this road, but it is, I think the goal, the operational goal is to push back Hezbollah further north, either to or past the Latani River, like around 1701. That's the goal. Um, now, Hezbollah is going to have mobile capabilities, so I'm sure they will continue to move forces into these areas and potentially conduct rocket attacks in Israel at various points to sh just to show that they're capable of doing it. But I think that's the, that's the goal. The challenge that they face is that if they start down this road, their air defense capabilities, so if you include Arrow, David Sling, and Iron Dome, are probably inadequate to deal with all of the 150,000 plus standoff weapons that exist in Lebanon and then in Syria and potentially from other locations too, like Iraq, possibly even Yemen. So that's a concern on the Israeli side is probably not able to protect key areas of the country, including cities like Tel Aviv. So that's one area of uh, concern. And then there's also this, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has already said this, uh, that if Hezbollah goes in that direction and threatens Israel like that, they have the capability to do what they are doing in Gaza to Beirut itself, which then also risks collapse, including economic, of the Lebanese state. So there are a lot of things that, um, that are, are going to be very delicate moving forward. I think the Israelis have an objective, but how they accomplish this will, and I think this is where the U.S. can play an important role in diplomacy in encouraging the Lebanese government, Lebanese armed forces to work with Hezbollah to push up north and avert a war because a war would really add additional fuel to what's going on in the Middle East today. To say the least, a really, really dangerous region um, just waiting to explode. Seth, thanks for outlining all this. I know we'll be talking about this in days and weeks to come. Thanks, Andrew. Always appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 